Hi, Alex Last again here with Richard Perris. Hi, Richard. Hi, Alex. Looking forward to our next conversation. So this time we're speaking to Sophie Smith and Mike James from Cleary. That's right. Yeah, Sophie and Mike are both based in the London office of Cleary Gottlieb. Sophie has recently joined the firm. Uh, She joined earlier this year from Kirkland & Ellis, where she was a partner in the private funds group there. She's joined to um, head up the funds practice at Cleary out of London. So yeah, it was a very interesting conversation. We covered a lot of topics here, including uh, technology, the Cleary X platform and that kind of thing. So I hope everyone enjoys it. Looking forward to it. So, Sophie, you've just joined the firm, right, to head up the funds team, the private funds team, the new private funds team, I think. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I joined in January. I'm coming up to my six months now. The funds team has been in existence for about 10 years in London, but probably slightly... Apologies, (laughs) (laughs) No, slightly less... Be well-established and... The slightly less like lower profile than perhaps some yeah. of the other funds teams in the London market and and our peers in in other markets. So, yeah, I'm excited to to take on that opportunity and help grow and leverage off of kind of our US and and Asia practices. So is that the strategy to sort of, because obviously Cleary has a a very strong presence in the US, some big clients there, TPG I think is the most well known. Is the strategy to sort of, you know, expand the practice for those clients or to go after other clients here or, because the London private funds market is a pretty difficult nut to crack, right? So how are you going to do it? Indeed. Heated question. Uh, <laughs> Targeting our existing clients and providing them with that additional European support is obviously the kind of low-hanging fruit. But also, I think the London funds market is kind of primed for some new players in it. I think the same folks have dominated the funds market for a very long time. And I think as, as the people at, at the more senior end transition out and people look to kind of who's going to take over and who's the next generation. I think the focus at Cleary is to really make sure that we are kind of primed for that next cycle. Meanwhile, kind of building our experience and expertise by working with our existing clients and also new clients that are coming into to the funds market as well. Yeah. And is there any sort of type of fund or size of fund you're going to focus on? Is it GP work you're going to focus yeah, on? Yeah. So we, I think historically, it's been predominantly LP work in London, but our other funds practices, both in, in Asia and New York, have been very strong GP practice. So I think the idea behind bringing me in, and Mike can tell you otherwise, is to really bolster that GP practice. And we have, you know, a handful of our own GP clients already in London, and it's really to leverage that to win more kind of GP mandates. And in terms of the type of clients, I think the team is fairly small at the moment relative to our peers and and one of the things that attracted me to Cleary was the fact that there is a in, intentional desire to keep that at a level that you can retain the culture and and the like and so you know that somewhat limits the type of mandates that we can do so i think for us, we're really focused on the mid-market, lower mid-market, and we do a bit of growth and some VC as well, coupled with our LP representations also. Yeah, so Mike, so you've been the funds practice to date, right? But you, <laughs> you were mainly sort of LP side representation. So I, I've had a slightly unusual route to where I am and have split my time between actually M&A and, and funds. I've been at Cleary now for over 12 years, Cleary Life, but during that time have spent nearly three years in our New York office working in our large New York funds practice and have somehow managed to either fail to get rid of some of that work or have it brought back with me to London. And so actually on, on that side of things, you know, I think as Sophie mentioned, we do have a, a mixed practice in London have had for the last 10 years. That does include 
some sponsor side work for some of our largest clients. As Sophie said, we've also had given our proximity to some of our key strategic sovereign wealth clients. We have, you know, serviced some some LP work out of London. And I think, you know, with Sophie joining, which we're very excited about, I think, yeah, as you said, the strategy is, is twofold, really. I mean, service existing clients with their fundraising activities in Europe, and, and that could be funds of any size, really, and then actually growing though the new client base, being realistic and, and, and focusing on, on, on the mid-market where we see a real opportunity and, and some fragmentation. So you're, you're part of a dying breed that uh, it's hard <laughs> to find that, a, a true hybrid M&A funds lawyer yeah, st- I, still alive in the wild. I wouldn't advise it. Um, <laughs> and I do say that as we have trainees and, and vaccine schemers join, I wouldn't advise it. But um, it is unusual, although we have something of a history of that our, the head of our funds practice, Michael Gersten Zhang, uh, now managing partner, actually was, was an M&A partner before he became head of the funds practice. You know, it's really been organic over time and has really grown with the client base and clients as you've done fundraising work. You've also been involved in their, in their deal work. I think we've now hit the tipping point where I, I realize it, it is useful and clients realize it is useful to have that broad base. You know, there can be some hairy moments as a junior where you're flailing around. I yeah, there, there is a trend towards yeah. specialization Absolutely. In, the, in the legal market. And I'm not sure how healthy that is sometimes because like, that overall knowledge, if you're a private equity advisor, do you really know what your clients are doing if you only understand half of the business? And I also think particularly now with the onset of kind of increased secondaries, GP, GP-leds and the like, where the line between M&A and funds is actually getting increasingly blurred. And so, you know, we've got a growing secondaries practice and, and Mike kind of is well primed to sit in that arena as well, because a lot of that work is funds and, and M&A. For a number of years, it was very much driven by client demand for specialization. And I think we're starting to see a shift away from that. And I think the way you know I and, and we would think about it at Cleary is particularly the larger most risky clients, they're looking for counsel, and that counsel does not necessarily need to be advising on a point in 25 other deals that you've done that year. It actually is providing, as, as, they, you know, as they're growing their businesses and, and developing, they want partners in thinking. As someone with a mixed practice area, you're uniquely well-placed to do that, even if it was by accident rather than design. <laughs> the Funds Council historically has probably been the closest that private equity has got to like external in-house counsel before they had in-house counsel. I agree with that. Agree. And that's why I always thought that you know, the M&A mixture served people well who were trying to do that role. As the firms, the bigger firms certainly have all got their own in-house teams who can sort of fill in the gaps. They've been able to demand that specialization a little more, I suppose. You mentioned secondaries. Is that a big area at the moment for you guys? And are you seeing that developing? Is that how commoditized is that becoming now? Is it, is it now a thing? Are we going to see specialists in secondaries deals or continuation funds or I, whatever it is? I think some firms would already say they have very large specialist teams in that area, although I think we see secondaries transactions as a, as a true hybrid transaction and actually require expertise both on funds and on the M&A. And you see that in the way sponsors set themselves up when executing on GP-leds generally will have two distinct teams, could even be at different law firms. And I think on the buy side, you need to be able to compete with each of those teams toe to toe. And so either having odd hybrids like myself or people with specialization in those areas, but with the ability to think more broadly and coordinate with folks on the other side, you know, is vitally important. And you asked whether we'd seen an uptick in secondaries. I mean, absolutely. 
the market has, has gone through the roof. We obviously had the credit secondaries sort of coming to the fore in, in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, see people raising on that. I think that's got a lot of development to do potentially. But yeah, in terms of specialization, uh, you know, I think, as I say, some firms will, but we, I think we think we're well placed with, with our existing hybrid approach. I'd probably hire a few litigators for the secondaries as well, because... <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to, the, to seeing what happens when all these secondaries that will happen, suddenly the valuations prove incorrect over the next 12 to 18 months and yeah. you know, the, the buy side of it uh, yeah, feel um, aggrieved. And we'll see what the, you know, the SEC does as well, obviously, with, yeah. their, with their proposals as well. So I think you know, long ago, the portfolio transactions had become you know, commoditized. But I think with the, the GP-led deals that, that we see, I mean, they're certainly not commoditized and can raise some real complex issues and conflicts that you have to be alive to on the buy side and you know it's very difficult to be able to bring you know the right expertise to bear as a specialist in that area you need to be across the whole transaction thinking about things thinking about the funds issues you know working with your regulatory colleagues and knowing what the the issues are it's been a very fruitful fruitful area for a lot, a lot of firms including ourselves and yeah so Sophie, how have you found the fundraising market since you joined? I mean, probably not as red hot as it was when you left your previous firm. <laughs> I, I... Yeah, no, I definitely think fundraising has slowed down. I don't. I think it would have been difficult to rival the fundraising pace that we saw over the past two years during COVID. I think the larger managers are still continuing to fundraise and doing so at, you know, probably a slightly slower pace than they would like. But our experience is that LPs are kind of being a bit more focused on on where they're putting their money. And, and a lot of that, which we hear from both our LP clients and our GP clients, is is resource. And so investors are, are struggling to kind of allocate resource internally with so many funds in the market. And it's just meant that oh, really? they've had to be a bit more strategic about where they dedicate their time. There are probably the same amount of funds in the market. They're just not raising as quickly. And so we will see how long it lasts. But the era of in and out in three, six months, I think, is probably going to be reserved for a few of the, the kind of larger players. And most other kind of mid-market, which is where we operate in, is is taking kind of the more, you know, 12 and sometimes even up to 18 months to, to raise. Well, presumably, <laughs> the, the, I was just going to say the classic numerator effect yeah. on the, the LP allocation of like the you know your equity portfolio shrinks dramatically and suddenly you're massively over allocated to yeah. private assets right so you end up having to trim your allocations and and there's a lot of funds out there to choose from I'm surprised yeah. that they're citing resources I, mean, I would just cite that if I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think they're probably being a bit more diplomatic maybe that's just a diplomatic <laughs> thing yeah but there you go and, and in terms of the negotiations you're seeing is that are we seeing a kind of change in dynamic as a result of that already? Are investors starting to get a little bit more yeah, power in the negotiations? And yeah, I definitely think so. I think I wouldn't say it's swung to a completely LP favorable, but as you know, the knock-on effect of it being slightly harder to raise capital is that those managers that you know were going out expecting a very easy ride and realizing that that's not coming to bear, that they're, they're making concessions where they probably wouldn't have otherwise done so. Kind of you know 12 18 months ago 
So going back to <laughs> the secondary's point as well, is there are a lot of, I think, new provisions that are being introduced into fund documents as a reaction to COVID that I think during COVID, sponsors were able to legitimately say, oh, well, we need this because we don't know where the market dislocation is going to be. We need to be able to be flexible to react to that. I think people are a bit more hesitant to just accept that and they're, they're really pushing with sponsors a bit more. And you know, we've seen that on both sides you know, in the context of, of secondaries and people trying to bake in language around continuation vehicles and giving that you know flexibility to allow cross trades um, at a later date. So that's been, I think, a point well, of how contention. Does the, how does COVID give you a backing? Sort of no, sorry, no. I was talking more generally. I think during COVID, people used you know the uncertainty of COVID to right. bake in a lot of flexibility, and they've tried to leverage that to kind of get through provisions. Oh, I see. In, right. yeah. yeah. Okay. The market still exists, I guess, which is yes, the main it thing. Yes, does. Yeah, and we I hope think so. Yeah, we <laughs> hope so. I think the the one good thing about funds is that it is it's a long term prospect, right? And so even though the market's a, bo- a lot choppier now, people still need to raise capital. There is going to be an end to it, even though people don't know when the cycle when that will end. And so you don't want to to be in a scenario, and sponsors don't want to be in a scenario where they've slowed fundraising down to a halt, and then they're coming from a standing start as and when. We do come out of the current difficulties and there are more opportunities out there than I think people think there are at the moment. Yeah. How are you finding this sort of the team build out and, you know, getting the people and that kind of thing? It's been good. It's a very competitive market, um, which is, you know, has its challenges. I think we've been very lucky in that, you know, we've been able to to grow our team. I think given the size of our team at the moment, it's really important to us that it it is organic growth and that it is people that we think will fit within the team and, and the culture. So we've, I think we've got three new people in our team from, from January who will start before the end of the year and we hope to kind of continue to add to that as work demands require. Yeah, but that'll, that'll sort of grow with the work rather than you having a certain team size that you want right now. Yeah, I think the team we have at the moment is sufficient to deal with both the work that we have and the work we contemplate. To quote our managing partner, we are a you know talent-based business and so where we see good people we tend to make sure that we're going after that rather than wait and we know that the work is there and that we'll be able to provide them with that good experience so I think we've got a very good core team now I think we're about seven in total and the idea is to to organically grow that over the next couple of years. So you've been involved in a few interesting structures I hear (laughs) 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 on the the evergreen funds that's taking assets that are traditionally in closed-ended funds like private equity or private credit but putting them into more open-ended hedge fund-like vehicles and there's one in particular uh, <laughs> that you that you represented my I think so how have you found that experience and people are talking about this as, as something that might be you know something that other people do in the future and um, particularly in the private credit space but given the nature of the asset class it presents a lot of challenges right but in terms of when do people come in and out of the fund how do you charge fees that kind of stuff do you think that's a sustainable model or is this something that you know one of your clients has managed to pull off for a number of years and no i i think it's certainly something that a lot of sponsors in the market have been talking about are talking about and very serious about whether that is based on experience and observations they've seen in the market as to certain very large and successful 
evergreen funds, or they're belatedly coming to a similar realization that actually building a product with the flexibility to house assets that may be within their core strategy or adjacencies, but which, you know, a product that gives them the flexibility to deploy capital into whatever they believe is the right strategy at the time is something that, you know, is a no-brainer. And then the structuring can come second and the complexities can come second. And, you know, we're, we're helping them figure that out. Private credit, for sure, it's something that people are thinking about. And that feels a little bit more nascent because, you know, perhaps some, some sponsors have traditionally had either extremely long-dated or open-ended funds, maybe in the infra space or, or core PE, just haven't been playing in and around the credit space. But now as you're seeing these large global managers diversifying their strategies, they're looking actually, as well as thinking about replicating some of the evergreen products in the market, they're also just thinking frankly about extending some of their existing structures that they maybe have in a core PE or core infra strategy and just applying it and saying, well, why not credit? Why not any other strategy? And so I certainly don't think the market has, has coalesced around one right answer. It's still a case of working out with your clients what actually suits their needs and what, frankly, is, is going to be right for their LPs. And is it going to represent a huge divergence from the documents and the structures and the, you know, that their LPs are used to? Or can it be done organically and sort of incrementally through tacking bits on? I mean, I think the way I always think about it, there's very little point in proposing to a traditional PE sponsor that the first evergreen fund they do, or quasi-evergreen fund, is just a hedge fund with a large side pocket. That yeah. is, is a way of achieving exactly what we're doing, but is probably not going to be right for them and their investor base and their, and, and their ops team. So absolutely, I think they're certainly hot right now. Is the attraction the flexibility of deployment, like having a pool of capital you can literally put anywhere? Within a strategy, you know, we've talked in this podcast about the rise and rise of secondaries. You know, obviously raising an evergreen or super long data pool of capital just totally removes the need to undertake those sorts of transactions and save costs down the line. And it's a very compelling story to, to LPs. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree. And I think, you know, to the point that we were talking about before, I think as the market slows down, people are looking at alternative ways to attract investor capital and for longer periods of time. And to Mike's point, depending on what the objectives of the sponsor are, if it is that they just have one prime asset that they want to retain exposure to, then actually maybe a continuation vehicle is the best route. But if they're looking for something that's a bit more long term, you then again, you've got the option of whether you go down the open ended fund route, which some large sponsors are doing and, and particularly in the private wealth space. Or if you want as Mike said, something that's a bit more akin to a close-ended fund, but just gives you that flexibility in that it doesn't have an end date mm -hmm. um, and you don't have the same liquidity concerns that you would in either a hedge fund model or even a, a standard open-ended fund model. This is, this is just one of the options open to sponsors who are thinking about, one, how do we kind of retain exposure to assets? How do we avoid raising capital every two years from the same pool of investors if, you know, because there are sponsors how, that do that. How do the liquidity terms typically, typically work in this kind of thing? So say I had a multi-asset 
25 billion-ish evergreen fund. What would I say to investors, okay, this is when you can get in and out, because presumably they, they won't accept that, you know, it's, a, it's not a permanent capital vehicle in that sense, right? It's not like a BDC or anything like that. How do you balance liquidity with the asset pool beneath? That's a great question. I think it's probably the key friction point that you, you need to be clear with clients with, with early on this and working out what frankly, as a bottom line, they think LPs are looking for and, and would accept on this. But, you know, I would say within this market of evergreen, quasi-evergreen, quasi-permanent capital vehicles, I think we, we do see a range of liquidity options and, and structures ranging from, I'll say no liquidity, but incentivized liquidity whereby you can say to investors, the terms of the fund through the waterfall incentivize us to manage these assets responsibly and realize them at a time that makes sense for, for everybody. But we don't want to be constrained to an arbitrary term limit, which we've been dealing with. We see hybrids whereby there is a certain amount of, I'll call it cash liquidity, that can be realized at set intervals, similar in a model to a potentially a core infra or P fund. And then there are some funds that look to provide much more flexibility around liquidity, although that gives rise to obviously to, to real complexities and actually provide hedge fund style liquidity to investors. But that frankly really is, you're limited somewhat in that practically by the strategies. I would say we see you know a range, but it's frankly one of the key day one issues to be discussing. And how does the performance for the carry typically get calculated? Is it like a annual thing? Are you going to tell me there's a range Great here question. as well? There is, there is a range. As you might expect, right, because people are borrowing from whether it be a hedge fund model or a core model, those concepts around fee and, and, and performance fee obviously, you know, influence people's thinking on this and, and including because, you know, LPs have seen those models in, in those products. And so we see funds that have a traditional deal by deal waterfall that allows realizations and carry on, on, on an asset by asset basis. We also see nav based performance allocations over a certain interval, whether that be cash pay or payable in kind. Depends on what paradigm the sponsor starts with in their mind. Are they coming from a more hedge fund model or are they coming from? We've only ever thought about closed-ended traditional private equity style or, or credit funds. And what will an LP accept uh, and be comfortable with as a, I'll call it a, an advancement of those terms or, you know, an evolution of those terms? But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to valuation and how certain you are of the value you've created is a permanent right. value. We, we, you know, and as liquidity goes up, that certainty yeah. gets higher. Yeah, exactly. And, and whereas in a private equity portfolio, the manager could value everything at X and find out that actually it was only worth X minus X. Of course, <laughs> and, and obviously, and obviously that concern, you know, could be amplified in an, an evergreen or long data product where, you know, the investment horizon on some of the most liquid assets can be ten plus years, yeah. or you're dealing with, frankly, you know, perpetual royalty streams or you know similar adjacent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see if, if these kind of funds develop a market norm. To me, they feel like they're very dependent on both the asset class and, like you say, like where the manager's coming from, where the investors yeah. are coming from. Whenever I was discussing this kind of thing, there was a real danger that you're talking at cross-purposes. Like, an investor's expecting a hedge fund, but you're marketing actually a closed-ended product or vice versa, and 
that only comes up later in the discussions when the term sheets have been signed and misunderstood. Yeah. That is exactly that, that's, yeah. that's exactly right. In these models, an early one-page business person's term sheet can be very valuable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think we also find that with our clients, like Mike said, they're already at one end of the spectrum. So where they end up is actually just an evolution that is very much aligned to where they're already at. It's just with the, the slight alteration of of some of the terms. So I think it's rare that we see sponsors go from a close-ended model to the hedge fund full liquidity side in one go. That may be where they end up over the course of time, but it is, and I think a lot, a lot of the ones that we've worked on have been sponsors that have historically had a close, close-ended vehicle and, and actually the incremental changes they're making is that it just means that the term of the fund is it's perpetual, but a lot of the key concepts that you would expect to see in a close-ended fund, like an investment period, like the fact that you remain exposed to investments made during your investment period, all exist. I think the, the key differential there is just when you end that investment period, which is at the investor's discretion. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's right. I think it, I think it's fair to say, just taking a, you know, a recent high-profile example, I think it's very rare and we would not expect to see sponsors getting into this market by raising a B-cred product that's several evolutions away i think we're we're seeing sponsors take smaller steps to get there but maybe that maybe that's where the market evolves to obviously blackstone kkr all of these big u.s firms are going after retail a little more is is this part of it as well that they need structures that actually are suitable for retail in terms of the regulatory permissions and stuff like that like Uh, bcred being the obvious example absolutely that i think alongside the you know the the retail or quasi retail money that is going into these products there's also a significant amount of institutional money as, as well and so i think as people see that play out there might be a few folks delving into that but i, I think as as we say i think that will be people that have already taken the leap into raising longer term or you know evergreen products and that's uh, just another evolution you know i think yeah. blackstone obviously have a very wide range of well, products yeah, that yeah. pretty much pretty much the whole gamut yeah, at this point absolutely I think. yeah absolutely one trillion of AUM by the end of this year looking to the future so that's part of the future presumably figuring all that stuff out are you finding technology is having an impact yet on how fundraising processes work are you doing anything specific to try and leverage technology now that you've only got seven people <laughs> you sound like all of our clients um, <laughs> There has been client demand for automated efficiencies in, in fundraising for many years. I think there have been small inroads made into that, but outside of conduit bank-raised feeders where a lot of information on, on investors is readily available and can be plugged into existing very well-developed systems, I think we and, and I think our peers, although we continue to make strides, have not found yet the golden ticket yeah. solution, but we will ultimately be driven by client. It won't become demand. It will be client expectation yeah. to do that. But I, I don't think right now. Yeah, I, I would say that there are a lot of providers and, and law firms as well like that are investing in, in AI and technology, not just in the fundraising space, but across the board. And, you know, we have ClearyX <laughs> that, that focuses on that. And there are areas that I do think you can benefit from technology. But Clearly I don't, X. Uh, well, Mike <laughs> talks about that. Um, Someone it, want to look our, at the branding on that. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, we'll but I do think there are yeah. <laughs> areas in which technology can be of use, but I just don't think it has been developed in a way that people are comfortable using it in large fundraisers. I think it's still in the developmental stage. So electronic subbooks, for example, yeah. AML, um, side letters, these are all areas in which I think technology does have a part to play. I think people are still trying to find the way, the best way to do that. And a lot of the difficulty is, is that different sponsors have different internal practices about how they deal with these things, but equally investors have different demands. So, you know, as in the feeder example, when you're dealing with a lot of high net worth, and that's just part of the course, that's fine. You can say you have to fill mm -hmm. this in and abide by this process in order to participate in this fund. And you just don't have the same flexibility when you've got a large sovereign wealth client that you know doesn't want to give you half the information that you need. So yeah. I, I think we're a ways away from having a fully technological automated fundraising process, which is great for our jobs. But um, <laughs> I, I do think that we are making strides and it's it's a matter of time before we see, and you know, we are starting to see technology creep into to the fundraising process. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, I think in the, you know, the near term solution is, is, I think will be driven by a mix of, you know, AI, yeah, yeah everyone's talking about, but also, part of that same conversation, and this is where ClearyX comes in, it's not just AI, but actually also looking at alternative legal services and ways of providing legal services. And just to take subscription documents as, as an example, everyone, every fund lawyer's favorite, outside of an AI solution, actually, where we found real efficiencies and improvements in, frankly, investor services as well as client services, is really focusing on creating a solution for our clients that, that involves not necessarily of associates in the fund team. No longer is it the, the job of the first year associate to review all subscription documents, but actually hiring and, and fostering and growing large teams of specialists that are, you know, alternative providers. So lawyers, but not, uh, you know, associates part of the funds team. And actually, frankly, we found that's been a huge benefit over the last five years. Is, is that outsourcing mm. that or is that it's hiring people within Cleary? No, or, no, absolutely within within Cleary. We have very large teams in New York that, that handle subscription processes and we leverage them from all over the world. And, and who, are, who are they? Are they sort of <laughs> alternative career track? Like, absolutely, a large mix, you know, all qualified lawyers. Yeah. But, you know, maybe coming back into to law at a later time in their career or looking for, you know, a different experience to the big law associate uh, right. and it allows them and us real flexibility both to ramp up and ramp down teams as needed and you know it's been a huge success actually yeah that isn't Cleary X though is it that's <laughs> not, that's, so what's that, Cleary X so, so good question so Cleary X is not a law firm it's a subsidiary of Cleary that, that's been launched after a long time in the planning in the last year it's run by a, an independent CEO and, and he's looking to do you know really two things first is to work alongside Cleary and in consultation with Cleary and developing practical AI solutions to the issues that we are facing mm -hmm. predominantly on you know in transactional matters and that obviously includes all of the things that you would think around you know diligence discovery etc and that really complements you know existing work that Cleary's been doing but really has now been put into Cleary X and formalized hopefully turbocharged that with people who frankly are experts in that field and not you know lawyers they're bringing their experience in in, in ai and, and and software to us mm -hmm. and we're consulting and, and and helping with that and then the second part of it is a very similar model to the one i've just described 
but potentially applicable across any, I'll call it user need. So it is, you know, hiring and deploying, you know, large teams of analysts, again, all lawyers, but not big law associates taken, you know, different tracks, maybe located anywhere globally, don't need to be in an office, but they can be deployed for any needs in a, in a lower cost and more efficient way as an alternative, right. you know, legal service. Right, right. And on the AI side, what what's the ultimate goal there? Is this like automated drafting stuff, like some of these, you know, you've seen these NDA markup technology that tries to, you know, language prediction that is certainly part of it. And actually, yeah. you know, to that, Cleary has been heavily involved in that. We've actually supported a company called 10B5 that have seen, they've sorted that in disclosure. And Cleary, uh-huh. uh, they are run by, founded by Cleary, former Cleary Associates, and is, is now very successful and absolutely looking to develop similar models where that makes sense. People get very, can get very hung up on automated production of documents, but actually at the top end of legal service provision, that can actually, when the rubber hits the road, be of limited utility. You know, I think principal focus is developing in areas of, you know, diligence, developing in areas of discovery, and then also on the fun side, helping us figure out what actually is could be the solution to this automation of, mm-hmm. uh, of funds-rated processes. And, and, you know, we and others in the funds team in the States are, are consulting and will uh, hopefully come up with a billion-dollar idea that will mean we can uh, all move to, to clear action. We'll, yeah. uh, Watch the space. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> this, this deserves a sequel in 12 months. Yeah. Is that how, yeah, what's the timeline on this world-changing idea? So, it, <laughs> you know, as with all things Cleary, we don't, we're not looking at a short-term uh, horizon. You know, this is something that we are, you know, it's been a long time in the making. We're very supportive of and we see as, as, as a very long-term project on something that will sit alongside and grow alongside the firm for many years. Private funds in particular, sort of everyone agrees that there must be some way that they can be made more efficient, use technology, standardize things more. And it feels like it's going to be one of those situations where everyone tries everything for a while, nothing really catches on, and then suddenly one thing everyone's suddenly using for some reason. And it's interesting that a lot of law firms are doing stuff like Clearia. Obviously, there's a lot of these similar projects, right? And, And will one of those take off? Because in order to take off, it would need to be adopted by the whole market, right. really. You know, there's right. this network effect with these right. things tender. And so is a, is a third party more likely to succeed there or is a law firm more likely to succeed there? I don't know. We know some of the, the larger law firms that you would think would be in a position to impose their will on the market have, have not necessarily been successful yet. So suggest that maybe an outsider coming in and having access to the whole market is something. But I think it really at this point remains to be seen. And maybe the only answer is actually just to... To, to have investors stop negotiating documents. Yeah. I was going to say, like, the unique but also distinct part of private funds is that it's not a bilateral, you know, yeah. negotiation. And so some of the ways in which you can streamline and automate other practice areas is a lot harder because you need buy-in from everyone that's participating and everyone has a very di- different standard and rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. I think my experience with third-party service providers that have tried to break into this market is that they often, I should say, don't understand some of the nuances of kind of a fundraise and because they only see it from their perspective. And I think that's where some of the products that have come out in recent years have fallen short of both 
ours as legal providers and also client expectations. And so there is a role potentially for third-party service providers, but it would require maybe in collaboration with a law firm to really bridge that gap because I think that's where they've really struggled to, to get off the ground where they have kind of come to market with, with these types of products. Well, yeah, there's a lot of very bespoke things going on in a private fund, you know, as you rightly point out. And without lawyers who are working in it taking the time to, like, get into the weeds of these processes, the, the end product is never going to be quite right, I think. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. But I can tell you, you're seeing a, you're seeing a billion-dollar idea yourself. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, I yeah. Yeah. for sure. Well, I, as, as, as someone who's currently a free agent, <laughs> <laughs> I will sell you it today for a billion dollars if you want, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Do you think the terms will ever become standardised? Like, that's another area where, we, you know, leaving technology aside... It always frustrated me that, like, we couldn't just sit down and, and agree what is reasonable for a private equity fund on 85% of the document. Yeah, because despite being objective standard, I think people have different views as to what is reasonable. And yeah. so there obviously have been attempts and, you know, ILPA have their, their guidelines and they've recently, well, not less recently now, but they have their LPA. And I do think having sat on both sides of the aisle as both kind of a, a GP lawyer and, and also an, an LP lawyer, I think is very difficult when, and particularly when firms either doing exclusively GP or LP, you kind of lose that dialogue as to why things are, are required. And, and there are a lot of, on both sides, kind of people that are adamant that this is our position and we, we don't deviate from that. And I think that makes it very hard to, to create a standardized process. And to the point I was making earlier, because you have LPs coming from such a broad range of jurisdictions with con their own considerations, I think that is another thing that makes it very difficult mm -hmm. um and so yeah I, I think we're a ways away from standardized provisions and and also as the market evolves you know terms evolve like it always used to be two and 20 and now it's like oh but premium carry and maybe you know, like as your fund gets larger you should reduce your management fee and there are all of these considerations that even when you think at a very high level you've got set and established terms there is a gradual erosion of that based on where the market's going and and where the power sits on either side of the aisle do you think the secondaries market might somehow help people coalesce around things because presumably when you're selling a secondaries interest if you're doing it a lot you know you need to summarize the terms of the fund that you're buying into or whatever it is right or the, I mean, is there any chance that that might people just categorize funds in certain ways or whatever it is i think just interesting thought on categorizing i i don't i don't think we're ever going to get to a level of standardization that would allow secondary interests to become commod effectively commoditized in the same way that you know you, you can execute a trade on the back of a an ISDA yeah uh, like form. an ISDA standard yeah absolutely i think there's always going to we you know, have to recognize there's always going to be some nuance and deviation but whether that means that we have to live in the world we're living in now, which every sponsor has vastly different you know, LPAs, and you know, frankly, investors are you know starting from scratch every time they open a new one. That's something that that will change over time. But I, yeah, I think, frankly, to the point of, are we going to end up with standardised terms? I think, you know, clearly on the investor side, they are and have shown through ILPA to be happy to sort of stand together arm in arm. But I think it also involves coalescing on the sponsor side. And I think that's going to be very difficult because, you know, you're either going to have to coalesce around a high watermark or a low watermark. And 
you can be sure as hell it's not going to be the low watermark <laughs> terms. And so it's going to be very difficult for you know people to actually justify. Uh, well, different you know, sponsors yeah. will probably feel that they're in yeah. different negotiating positions yeah, and you know exactly. deserve different things. Exactly. And, yeah. So we're all doomed, and the only people who benefit are the lawyers charging by the hour. Who do. <laughs> Reasonable. <Yeah. laughs> great. <Accurate. laughs> this has been great. I mean, unless there's something else burning that you need to tell me about the new, improved, clearly private funds practice. <laughs> Uh, no, I think we've covered all the bases. I think, I think yeah. Sophie's <laughs> covered it all, and we're very excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with it all, Sophie. I hope uh, hope it uh, goes well, and you uh, you knock it out of the park over the next couple of years. I look forward to speaking again soon. Great, thank, thank you. Thank you very Cheers. much. For having Thanks, us. Mike.